Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Today is the second week of a series entitled Transformation of the Mind. And in so doing, I want us to look at those lies that lead us away from God's narrative for our lives, the lies that lead us. Scripture says much about this subject, and probably, as we saw last week, probably the most famous reference is found in Romans 12, verse 2, which says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what's God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Specifically, those lies that lead us into lives of anxiety or fear or worry. Last week, we, we, agreed, we agreed and said that there was no value in a preacher to standing on a pulpit and declaring, don't worry, don't be fearful, don't be anxious. This is actually of no help at all and probably makes things worse. What we said was that over these weeks, we would try and identify some of the roots of anxiety, fear, and worry, and which tell us lies, which come out of the lies that we are told about God. Satan's main weapon is lies, and he lies especially against God. We looked at John 10 and John 8, and we said that God wants us to step into an abundant and full life. We acknowledge that it was not going to be one that was absolutely easy or anything less than challenging and difficult, but even in those circumstances, there could still be an abundant life and not controlled by anxiety and worry. The way that we step into this kind of life is by recognizing and responding to the voice of God. For we believe that when God speaks to us, he speaks words of hope and life and peace. When his words sink deep into our hearts, into our very being, they allow us to step into a more free, more full, and more abundant life. Gradually and steadily seeing things from a different perspective and changing our thinking in light of his revealed truth, not being led by lies. We also acknowledge that we have an enemy and that enemy's goal is to rob us, to steal from us the life that God wants us to enjoy. And the way that he steals this good life or the abundant life, as John tells us, is through those lies that he speaks to us. Generally, when he speaks, well, generally he speaks to us lies about God, but they are not blatant lies, they are subtle lies. He is more likely to sow seeds of doubt about the character of God into our ears and into our mind rather, and as we saw last week, trying to convince us that Elvis is still alive and has moved from Huntley now to Rotatuna where I saw him last week. (laughs) But as soon as these subtle lies take root in our mind, they distort the truth and sometimes can lead us into lives that are controlled by the things that we have already mentioned. The late Tim Keller says it so superbly. He says this, Satan does not leave fang marks in your flesh. He leaves lies in your heart. He doesn't leave fang marks in your flesh. He leaves lies in your heart. 
So looking back to last week in Genesis 3, we saw that fear enters the human heart for the very first time because Eve started to believe lies about God. She began to believe a lie that God was miserly. God was somewhat stingy. God was controlling. He wasn't as generous as he perhaps had made out. Rather than actually believing the truth that God is a protecting God and God is generous and open-handed and is also open-hearted. So we agreed last week that deceitful lies create disordered minds that lead to fear-filled hearts. So put it another way, the enemy's lies lead us into worry, which robs us of our joy, anxiety, which steals our strength, and fear, which kills our courage. We concluded that spiritual warfare is firstly a fight between truth and lies. But as we move on, this sometimes gets complicated, and it is difficult to separate the lies from the truth. Let me try and give it some reasons why this is a possibility. Firstly, it is often easier to identify the lies that other people are believing rather than identifying the lies that we as individuals are believing. Often it is quite easy to spot lies and how people are believing it in the outworking of our friends' lives and in another culture than it is in our own lives or in our own culture. But we often see these things in others but not in ourselves. It is hard sometimes to see something that is so normal but it is also a lie or it is a distortion of the truth. We are used to it. For example, it is possible that we could quite easily see the lies in the ideology of somewhere like North Korea but maybe find it less easy to see the lies in the ideology of New Zealand that have become normal for us. We can easily identify the dangers of what is happening in the United States and the religious right and Christian nationalism, but don't notice it here so much because we are used to the culture here. Secondly, I think we have a complication around these lies and this truth access because it is actually possible that some of us or part of us would like the lies to be true because it would make our lives somewhat easier or more exciting or fun. (laughs) Example, virtually every week I receive in my inbox an email from a really generous man, and this week it's a gentleman from West Africa letting me know that he had 10 million US dollars waiting to be transferred into my bank account, and all I had to do was to give him my details and my PIN number. You know, it is obviously a lie, but there is a bit of me that thinks, wouldn't it be fun if it was true? Wouldn't it be really, really fun if it is true? Sometimes I think this is how it goes with lies in our society and in our world, especially around things like materialism or sexuality. There may even be a bit of us that may think that wouldn't it be rather exciting if these opportunities and possibilities were true? It could perhaps make our lives a little bit more fun. Thirdly, we have some complications around this truth and lies axis because we have discovered that lies believed as truth will affect our lives as if they are true. Let me explain. If something is not true, but we believe it to be true, then it will affect our lives 
as if it were true. A little bit complicated, so let me give you a couple of examples. For many centuries, the inhabitants of this earth believed that the earth was flat. Now, of course, we know that that is a lie. It is not the truth. We know that the world is globe, globe-shaped. But for centuries, people believed that the world was flat. They believed that if they went out on a boat somewhere, it was possible to drop off the end of the earth and into space. We know that this is a ridiculous lie, but if you believe it as truth, it affects how you live. As a child, I was told a few lies that I believed to be true. One example of this is, if you made a certain expression with your face, or pulled the face, as we used to say, or poked your tongue out, and if the wind changed, <laughs> if it changed direction, at the same time, your face would stay that shape forever. Am I the only one that got told that lie? Whole lot of people. Some of you are actually wondering if it actually happened to me. <laughs> Now another one was chewing gum. If you swallowed gum, it would so wrap up your intestines that they would not be able to do anything at all. And you were warned against chewing gum. Was anybody else uh, swallowing gum? Was anybody else told that? It would do you so much damage. You know, to, to this very day, I hardly ever chew gum because of that. And if I were to chew gum, I would spit it out. I would never, ever swallow it. Lies believed as truth will affect our lives as if they are true. As I have already referenced, this whole area can get kind of complicated, separating truths from lies and culture. And this is why I can't emphasize enough the importance of developing habits in our life that center our lives on truth. So today, I want to unpack some lies about ourselves, about you, and about me. John Mark Comer, who is an American pastor, and he helps us understand the link between these challenges. And he says the three big questions in life are this. Question one, who is God? Which is a question of theology. Question two, who am I? Which is a question of anthropology. And question three, What is my purpose, which is a question of morality or sociology? He says further that question one is the most important because questions two and three build on the first one. That is why I believe the enemy of our soul is so busy casting lies about God into our minds. So how we see God affects how we see ourselves. How we see God affects how we see ourselves and it impacts how we live. Theology affects our anthropology, which in turn affects our morality. If we believe that God is a loving creator God, then we will see ourselves as a loved child of, of this creator and that we will know that we were intentionally designed to live with a purpose and a sense of accountability and a friendship with this creator God. The converse, the opposite is also true. If we believe there is no creator God, that we are simply here by accident, then life becomes the survival of the fittest. So this brings us to question two. Who am I? So therefore, we're going to look at the lies that I believe most likely come our way as followers of Christ that will 
be aimed at robbing us of what God says about us. The lies that the enemy whispers into all our ears at different times. I'm gonna separate these into four different categories and quickly go through them. First of all, the lies about us, about you and me, are found in the stories we tell ourselves. What are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves? Those moments where our mind works over time and we tell ourselves a story about our circumstances that is not at all true. Our imagination works over time, it runs wild, and the enemy whispers into our mind, getting us to think in a way that either seeks to devalue or undermine our identity. Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, is a classic example of this. In this passage, Elijah has just come from the wonderful victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and he separates himself away from people, and he starts to feel a little bit lonely. He starts to feel a little bit grumpy and downcast. He starts to tell himself, and he tells God a story that actually isn't true at all. He says, God, I am the only one left, and there's no others who are devoted to you. And God replies and says, Elijah, that is not true. There are 7,000 left who have never bowed the knee to Baal. We see that Elijah tells him a story that things are worse than they actually are. He is being overdramatic and he is actually lying to himself. He's telling himself a story about himself that's not true. Maybe it's the kind of thing that happens to the prodigal son in Luke 15. He finds himself in the pig pen, all alone telling himself a story that his father could never love him anymore because of the, his rebellion is so bad. In fact, he tells himself a story that he can only be a slave and never be a son. And of course, this is so far from the truth. The truth is that his father is desperately waiting to embrace him and love him, but he tells himself a story that he is far worse than he really is. Do we ever do that kind of thing? Do we ever allow our minds to work over time and tell ourselves a lie about our circumstances that is not actually accurate and true. It's that thing that happens when your boss walks into work and you say hello to her and she ignores you. And we start to tell herself, she doesn't like me, she hates me, she's angry with me, I've done something wrong. It may be she just didn't hear you. But our minds play havoc with us and we start telling ourselves a story that is not true. I believe that this is one of the ways lies creep into our minds. It is through the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and we so often lose our peace of mind and we find ourselves drowning in the worst case scenarios and they don't even exist. Secondly, lies that cripple us are found in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see ourselves. It is what Moses does, does in Exodus 4. God calls him to be a spokesman, to go and speak to Pharaoh, and to release the Israelites. But the thing that Moses says is, well, it, that's not me. That's not me. I could never do that. I am slow of speech. 
and of tongue. I'm just not great at this public speaking stuff. And God speaks back and says, I don't see you that way. In fact, I actually created your tongue and I want you to go back and get on with it, mate, or something like that. Let us look at another example, Gideon. When Gideon is called by God to fight in Judges 6, he comes back and says, that's not me. He says these words, then the Lord returned to him and said, go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, but sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike down the Midianites every one of them. Gideon is saying, I am actually from the weakest tribe. I'm the most insignificant in my family. I'm just a nobody. And God says, that's not how I see you. That's not how I see you. That's not how I see you at all. And actually, I want you to get up and I want you to go and be a mighty man of of war. It's so easy to allow those lies to creep in when we listen to the voice of the enemy and start seeing ourselves in a way that is totally different to how God sees us. There are things, there are phrases, there are statements we say about ourselves that we need to stop saying. They are not true. Things like, oh, that's not me. Who says so? I believe God has a different point of view. Something that, oh, over the last maybe four, five, six months, God's been speaking to me, well, he spoke to me through my wife, which is the usual way that he spoke to me. (laughs) And then, after she'd spoken to me, I went to, I was going to say to a higher authority, but I'm not sure I can really say that. (laughs) I used to say sometimes, just jokingly in, in conversations, I would joke and say, you know, now that we're grandparents, I always used to say that I, I was a better dad than I was husband, but I'm a better granddad than I was a dad. That I was a better dad than I was a husband, better granddad than I am a dad. And this really annoyed my wife. And don't forget, she is Irish. And it really, really used to niggle her. And I said, well, it's probably true, I think. And she says, well, she couldn't really articulate it. So I did go away and I talked about it with God and I prayed about it. And I didn't feel God chastised me in any sense. But and I didn't feel he told me that I was right or wrong. But I felt him say this, who told you that? And you don't know that's true. There was no chastisement. There was no like, oh, I, felt I had to repent. And, but he says, and I just felt God saying, how do you know that you were a better dad than you were a husband? You're making a judgment call that only I know. And don't go around saying that because not that it's, he didn't tell me it was right or wrong, but it's not mine to say. It's not my call to make. So she's not here this morning, so I'll say it later on again. (laughs) You know, lies that creep into our minds and life when we see ourselves in a totally different way to what God sees us. Lies can be found in the names that other people give to us. Time and time again, this happens in the Bible. This first illustration I want us to look at is found in the story of Jabez in 1 Chronicles 4. And his name means pain. His mother gave birth to him and it was a painful delivery. And so they called him pain, Jabez. 
So every time everyone saw this guy, they said, oh, he's a pain. He's a pain in the neck and lower regions as well, and he's still a pain. Jabez had to pray really hard to break that lie in his life. For everywhere he was going, people called him pain. See, in Genesis 25, we see Jacob, whose name, name means deceiver. That lie, that name that was spoken over him was given to him and he was born and that shaped his life. He turned out to be quite a deceiver until he had an encounter with God and something is broken and he is given a new name. It is possible, really, really possible, that you have been given a name either intentionally or unintentionally and you have come into agreement with that name and you are living under that. It is like you are partnering with a lie that has been spoken over you because a name or a characteristic was given to you. I am not really thinking about the name that's on your birth certificate, but even this can be an influence on some. What I mean is that there are names that have been spoken over you that you have accepted as true and you're living in the light and in the as a consequence of and in the darkness of that name and something needs to be broken. Someone may have said to you, you're good for nothing. Someone may have said, no one can really love you. You know, you're not as good as your brother or your sister or you will never amount to much. You know, once a failure, always a failure. This week, someone said to me about a situation, once a cheater, always a cheater. And for some reason, something arose, some ire arose in my heart because that is not true. Because when you have an encounter with the living God and through the redemptive work of Calvary, these things can be broken. And we need to be careful that we are not living under the, the lies that other people have said over our life. Someone may have said to you, Something like this. People say some of the most cruel things over us and about us. Sometimes we don't know the significance of what they have said or what they are saying, and these things land on us, and they are a lie. It becomes a lie over us, and we start to come into agreement, and it radically changed our lives. Those of you, well, most of you, I'm sure, will remember, there was a group in the, in the 80s and the 90s called the Carpenters, Richard and Karen Carpenter. We've got a photograph here somewhere. I probably couldn't use this analogy tonight because everybody would be under the, under the age of what you guys are. Ah, oh, there she is. Remember Karen Carpenter? The great brother and sister act. And those of you will know the, her story, that she died as a um, complications from anorexia. And it was a tragic, tragic life. I think she was just in her 40s, she died. And she struggled with health and eventually, as I said, due, died due to complications as a result of anorexia. This all started when she was much younger, when she read an article in a newspaper talking about this new brother and sister act, this brilliant, the brilliant music that Richard and Karen produced. And they said, Richard and his slightly chubby sister. And I think she was about 17. And whilst far, far from chubby, she may have had, I looked at some of the photographs, may have had some puffy, puppy fat, but she was not. But those words landed on her. 
and that was a lie over her life. This article, this name given her by others, sent her on a mental and physical spiral that eventually cost her her life. Maybe, not quite so dramatically, we can believe the lies in the names that other people have said about us. Fourthly, lies that can rob us of life can be found in the circumstances that shape us. We see that in the life of Naomi, in Ruth chapter one, Naomi's life is quite traumatic. She experiences terrible bereavement and then she lives in trauma. Life for her is so terrible, so she changes her name and she calls herself Mara. The name Naomi means beautiful, whereas Mara means bitter. It says, she, Naomi, said to them, Call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara. For the Lord, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Because the circumstances were so bad, she rejects, rejects the truth that she is beautiful and accepts the lie that the portion of her life will always be in bitterness. She allows the circumstances of that situation to shape the rest of her life. I'm sure that there are some of us here today that when we look at the circumstances and the difficulties and challenges of our circumstances, maybe parental or family wounds or wider family challenges or employment challenges, sometimes these things are so painful that we believe the lie that our circumstances are a reflection of our identity. Well, these things always happen to me. That our circumstances actually prove what we believe about ourselves, that we are a failure, that we are guilty and that we are weak. You know something, friends, this morning? Failed marriages, kids not walking with God, these do not define you. Last week I said that we are designed to be shaped by a voice, that voice is always God's voice, and that voice spoken in our life always wants, always wants to speak truth and encouragement into our situation. And it wants to lead us away from the damage and from the consequences of lies to a fuller and freer life. But as we again acknowledged last week, there is another voice. This is the enemy's voice, and his primary strategy is to keep on lying. We said it wasn't destruction, disease, or the demonic, but lies were his number one um, arm, armory, as it were. You know, in Matthew 3 and 4, we have an incredible attack of the enemy against Jesus, and we see how Jesus defends himself. In Matthew 3, we have this great story of Jesus' baptism, and at the end, there is that precious moment when his father speaks affirmation over his son. And Jesus comes up out of the water and his father speaks from heaven. At that moment, it says, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. The, the voice of the father speaks over Jesus and as he does, he speaks life and love and approval. He speaks the truth about Jesus and talks about his real value to him. He is so proud as a father. But it seems 
as if as soon as he hears the voice of truth, Jesus is led into an encounter with, G- with, with the enemy that speaks lies. And in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 4, we are told that the Spirit of God takes Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. So when Jesus is all by himself, he speaks lies to him. There is something of crucial importance to note at this point that is pivotal to this whole area and this whole arena of lies and being lied to by the enemy. The enemy will most often wait for you to be isolated for him to speak lies into your heart. Elijah was alone. Moses was alone in the desert. Gideon was alone in the wine press. The prodigal son was in the, in the pig pen. Jesus was alone in the wilderness. The enemy loves it when we are isolated, when we get cut off from community and the community of followers of Christ. When we have allowed a drift, and this drift to take place in our life from others, <laughs> whether we're too busy or we just can't be bothered, The enemy loves it when we choose to say we belong to a church and then we don't go to church. If at all possible, the enemy will wait for us to be isolated, to be alone, and he will fill that vacuum (coughs) with lies. It happens here in Matthew 4. Jesus is alone and the devil comes to him and starts to twist the truth. (coughs) And he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, what the enemy is doing in this moment, he is repeating the exact same words that the Father had spoken to Jesus just a short time again, except he is missing out one word, beloved or loved. It is like the enemy is saying, yep, you might be the son, but are you really loved? If you are stuck out here in the desert and there's no food for you and you're starving to death, Are you sure the Father really loves you? You're about to suffer, and we know that he would eventually go to the cross and suffer big time. But Satan says, and he says he loves you? That doesn't sound like love to me, making you go through this. This is the same lie that we hear all the time, that we are not really loved, that we really don't have that much value, that our identity is not that real. And is what God is saying about us really, really true? So how does Jesus respond? And as you can imagine, his response is flawless, it is perfect. He doesn't respond with fear or worry. He is like the non-anxious presence in this story. He simply says, it is written, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He is saying this, he is saying, I will live off the last thing that my father said to me, and the last thing that he said to me was that I am loved. He doesn't go into some theological debate, three-point sermon or argument. He doesn't try to prove Satan wrong. 
he simply goes off the last thing that he heard his father say to him, that he was his son and that he was loved. You know, if we look at the entirety of this particular test, uh, text, every time the devil comes and challenges Jesus or his identity or his destiny, Jesus comes back and says, it is written. When the enemy tempts Jesus later to bypass suffering and avoid the cross, he again says, it is written. You know, I just love the, word, the fact that Jesus' words are dripping, are saturated with the word of God, that he has got it into his system. You know, he is the Logos, he is the word, but he is to his our examples. And this leads me to talk very quickly and briefly about spiritual disciplines. And are we truly engaging in them? You see, spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. Things like prayer and Bible reading, scripture memorization, and much more are not just simply practices for people who have a few spare moments at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day. These practices are essential if we are going to take a stand against the lies that come our way. Please, for the next 60 seconds, let me be quite direct, and I apologize in advance. If you don't have some of these habits in the center of your life, then you need to get some ASAP. If you don't have some of these habits in the center of your life, then we need to get some ASAP. If we can find time to watch a box set of Netflix or check social media, but we don't have 15 minutes with our Bible, I think we need a rethink. If we can spend an hour texting, texting or on Instagram or in the gym or drinking coffee and we don't have 15 minutes to pray, then I think we need a rethink because there is a battle going on for our minds, a battle going on for our identity, a battle going on for our destiny. And this battle is fought between truth and lies and some of us need to start to pick up some weapons and do some fighting or we will live under the lies of the enemy that he will say over us time and time again. We need to create intentional habits that center our lives on the truth. Otherwise, the lies of the enemy will overwhelm us. Fear and worry and anxiety will cause havoc, and this was never God's intention for us. What we said last week, what we allow, when we, what we allow access to our minds will shape us. What we give attention to we give authority to. It is essential we create habits that center our lives on the truth. Last week, I put something up on the screen that helps me, and many of you came back to me last week, and I thank you for that. What are the lies I believe about God? What are the, how, do they, how do these lies create fear, anxiety, or worry in me? What is the counter-truth? How did this truth lead me into abundant life. Last week we looked at the lies about God. Do we have that? No, sorry. <laughs> sorry, mate. <laughs> Let's go to straight to this week then. What are, we, what are lies do I believe about myself? I'll never be good enough. How does that create fear and anxiety? Oh, I'll never get the job that I really want. I'll never really be able to provide. I'll never be able to do this or that. What is the counter-truth? The counter-truth is I'm accepted and loved by God for who I am because he made me. And there's no, nothing more I can do to add that. And how does this truth lead me into abundant life? I don't have to constantly worry about proving myself to others. Musicians, please come and join me.
Let's all stand. For the next two minutes, I'm going to close like I did last week. I want to remind us about some things that the Bible says about you and me. It is important that we understand the truth about ourselves. You know, today Ephesians 1 tells us that we are chosen, adopted, and forgiven, and we are recipients of God's abundant grace. Some may need to be reminded that Psalm 139 tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Did you know, of course you do, it is written in Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from his love. Absolutely nothing to. Nothing can do that. Some may need to hear again that Psalm 32 says that he will protect you from trouble and he will surround you with songs of victory. Some of us need to hear that Philippians 4 says that we can do, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Some probably need to hear that it is written in 1 John 3 that the Father has lavished his great love on you and you are his child. Many of us today need to understand and hear that Romans 8 tells us that it is written that we are all free from condemnation. That if anyone speaks a word of condemnation over you, it is a word of a lie because you are free from that. <coughs> Some need to hear that 2 Timothy tells us that you haven't been made and given a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and a sound mind. Some need to hear that Jeremiah 29 tells us that he has plans to prosper you and not to harm you and plans to give you a hope and give you a future. And all of us need to hear that Deuteronomy tells us that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And again, we all need to hear and absorb and believe the truth because we know that truth sets us free. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.